This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. One of my favorite spiritual teachers is a 47-year-old who lives in Northern California named Adya Shanti. Adya, as he is called by friends and students, is often described as a non-dual teacher, someone who teaches about awakening to oneness, or what Adya calls awakening to, quote-unquote, non-division. He was trained in the Zen tradition, And when he had what he calls a great awakening, he says that he woke up even from Zen. Sounds True has published many programs with Adya, including an audio series on spontaneous awakening, a book-CD combination on true meditation, and a book and audio series on the end of your world, uncensored straight talk on the nature of enlightenment. Soon after we published The End of Your World, uncensored straight talk on the nature of enlightenment, Adya, along with his wife Mukti, came out to Sounds True for a visit as part of a summer trip they were making to the Colorado mountains. During the visit, I actually dragged Adya into our recording studio and, on the fly, had a conversation with him about something I've been wrestling with ever since we created the book together, which is why many contemporary non-dual teachers talk about how important it is to be quote-unquote without position, to not believe in the reality of any thought or belief or take a position on anything. Now, I understand that all thoughts are inherently untrue because thoughts are abstractions. They're labels. They're one step removed from actual experience, which is non-conceptual, direct experience. But given this, and this was what I wanted to talk to Adya about, how do we make sense out of the value that certain kinds of thoughts can have? Inventive thoughts, kind thoughts, how do we understand that? Here's my conversation with Adya Shanti on just that question. Adya, one of the questions I have relates to what seems to me a little bit of a confusing view of how to understand thoughts once you start looking at whatever the mind generates as potentially fiction. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that's just something my mind made up, that, you know, you're short, for example. I don't know why I thought of that. Uh, Maybe because I am short. But maybe you're not short. Maybe you're just not at, I mean, it's a relative term, right? So then everything that comes up in the mind, you know, you're short compared to somebody who's Mm-hmm. You know, but you're not actually short necessarily. If we lived on a different planet, where yeah. you could suddenly be tall, because right, so everything right. becomes every thought that the mind generates becomes relative. So yeah. you can't trust any of them. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is: Well, does that mean that everything the mind generates, uh, uh, thoughts, ethical thoughts about you know, I, I just don't think that's right for that kind of environmental destruction to happen, or the way I want to vote is everything everything the mind generates fiction? Equally mm. fiction, relative mm-hmm. fiction. No, I think that would be totally misleading. If it, it, 
it's it's not like it's there's not a level playing field in the sense that everything you say or don't say is not equally true or equally untrue. Some things we say are more true than other things. From the absolute point of view, we could say the absolute transcends all language and all statements, right? But the absolute point of view also includes and expresses itself through relative points of view. So it would be ridiculous if, you know, you looked uh, from a human being and, and saw an ant and said, oh, that ant, no, it's not small, it's huge. Right? From a human perspective, it's big. Right. You, we could say, oh, ultimately, gravity doesn't exist. But, you know, if you don't get out of the way of a rock falling on your head, that absolute truth isn't going to do you much good. Right. You know, so there are these, there are even thoughts that can arise. Thoughts can arise basically from two places or two, I guess you could say energy fields almost. One of them is from a place of compulsive thinking where it's just sort of the conditioned mind generating conditioned thoughts. You know, like you said, you can look at somebody and your conditioning may say, oh, we'll want to define them. They're short, they're tall, they're smart, they're scary, they're loving, they're, you know, our conditioned mind likes to package everything very quickly. That kind of thinking is just completely conditioned. Right? It's mechanical. And so... I think the vast majority of thoughts that go through most people's heads are of that variety when they walk about their day. But thought can also come from um, a different energy field. You know, in Buddhism, um, they have an, a, a word prajna, and its and its its rough translation would be heart wisdom. Yeah. And it's and it's a wisdom that arises not necessarily from you know the the heart center being open, but but it's it's a way of saying that it doesn't arise from the conditioned mind. And there are thoughts that can arise from a different place rather than conditioned thinking. They can arise from prajna, which in a practical sense, I guess you could say, um, from silence. You know, prajna, when, which everybody has experienced prajna, it comes as an insight. You know, when you have those moments of, aha, mm -hmm. it's not, it's like a gift, right? You may have thought about something for a long, long time, worked on it, and then all of a sudden, often, at the oddest moments, there's just a moment of, aha, and that's the opening of prajna. And with that aha, there's a physical component. Mm -hmm. Your body, so your whole, that's what heart means too, your whole body is partaking, there's an energy, that's the... That's the bringing the breath in, right? Aha! And so your body is partaking of it, and then there's the intellectual side. So there's the thought. There's, oh, I understand this now. Mm -hmm. I see through that. And so that's a whole different level of, um, of thinking, you could say. It's not compulsive thinking. It's more thinking on the level of, of insight and aha than sequential thinking. And from that level of discrimination, because that's, I think, one of the real misunderstandings is like, we can come into these states of consciousness, say, or these views, and I like to think of ultimate reality or enlightenment as like a jewel. It's often, it has been depicted by a jewel with many facets, and 
when you look from a particular facet, let's say you look from the facet of emptiness. Right? From the facet of emptiness, it's beyond, there's beyond right and wrong, beyond good and bad. There's really no judgments to be made. There's really no even discriminations to be made. Everything is seen to sort of be a bit on the level of an ephemeral illusion or a dream nature. And from that facet of ultimate reality, it's true. From that facet. The problem which, with each of these facets, each of these views from reality, is each view feels like, when you, when you come into contact with it, it feels like it is the complete view. That's the problem with it, right? So, when people come into these views, oh, there's no doer, there's nothing to do, there's, there's no discriminations to be made, they're all illusions. From that particular facet, that's true. But what often happens is when we think that's the only truth, then we've fallen into a subtle spiritual trap. Because, as I said, each view feels complete, so it's easy to get stuck in any of them. When you're not stuck, then you start to, your consciousness can sort of navigate through all these different mm -hmm. facets. And yeah. ultimately, that's the real view of all the facets, available and complete, intermingling, right? Yeah. And so it's like, yes, the ultimate truth is beyond good and bad and right and wrong, and yet, from another facet, there is good and bad, we could say from a certain perspective, there is right and wrong, at the same time that there isn't. Simultaneously, from the level of conceptual thought, that's a contradiction that doesn't make any sense. It's like, it has to be one or the other, that's what our thinking would be. But from the level of insight, we see no, these very contradictory views can simultaneously exist, do simultaneously exist, and actually contribute to a much vaster view, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And so each, as I see it, each of the uh, spiritual traditions, if you really start to look at them, you start to realize that each of them sort of has a gift to give. And the gift is usually that they highlight certain facets of the jewel. None of them highlight them all equally. Certain ones highlight certain facets. And that's good, because if you try to highlight everything all at once, you just get confused. But there's also a trap in it, in that you can think that, you can forget that there's many, many different views mm -hmm. that go into this sort of, the overall view of reality, you know? You know, one thing I've heard you teach on often is this idea of not believing, quote-unquote, the next thought. Yeah. Like the, the next, whatever that may be. Yeah. And yet, what I hear you saying now is it's possible that the next thought might be a really important insight or a right. vision, let's mm -hmm. say. A vision has, I mean, what if, if throughout history, various kinds of, you know, entrepreneurs and innovators and, you know, visionaries of all kinds didn't have a vision and if they just said, oh, I'm a, I'm a non-dual practitioner, I'm not going to believe the next thought slash vision I just had. Do you right. know what I mean? It's a thought, it, therefore, it can't possibly it, be true. Exactly. When, they, when somehow the universe was delivering an incredible, you know, cure for a virus or something. Right, right. Well, 
Let's see. I, I'd like to try to make these things as simple yeah. as I possibly can because they are kind of, in one sense, complex, but I think they yeah. can be made very simple. Um, it all comes down to, the Buddha used to talk about spiritual teaching being like a medicine. Yeah. In fact, he has sort of been talked yeah. about as being like a doctor. Yeah. Someone comes with a particular disease. So someone comes to me or to some other spiritual teacher, and through the interaction... The spiritual teacher is basically diagnosing what's their dis-easement, right? And so, um, someone may come and, let's say, someone like myself, I see that they're really caught in conditioned thinking. So, the, the medicine I might give them is meant for that particular dis-ease, which mm -hmm. is, don't believe your thoughts anymore, right? It's, it's sort of like if somebody comes with a virus, not a virus, but a bacteria, and you give them antibiotics, yeah. right? And it cures the antibiotics. Yeah. It doesn't mean they should be on antibiotics the rest of their life, does yeah. it? And it doesn't mean the antibiotics is health. Yeah. The antibiotics can help bring them to health. Yeah. And this, I think, is a really important thing when it comes to spiritual teachings. Because often the teachings which are ultimately medicines for a particular diseasement or distortion the teachings become mistaken as the truth. So a teaching like there's no such thing as a true thought becomes not a medicine, yeah. which is how I would mean it, yeah. but as a statement of this is the ultimate truth. Yeah. I see it as simply a medicine for a particular disease. If it's understood that way, then it can help r bring someone back to a more healthy state of consciousness, let's say. Yeah. And then from that point, then one can start to discriminate and have a subtlety within their perception where they can start to feel and notice and discern a thought that's coming from the conditioned mind and a thought that's coming from prajna or from a deep intuitive wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then the old teaching of there's no such thing as a true thought, that teaching is no longer relevant anymore. Mm -hmm. Right, just like when a, when someone's cured of an illness, you don't you stop giving them that medicine. Yeah. Right. Maybe they need to. Okay, now you need to look at your lifestyle or something different. Right. Um, and I think that's the that's the difficulty with with teachings for not only the students, but I've seen a lot of teachers mistake the teachings for the truth. Yeah. And the teachings are not the truth. You know, Buddha told us that twenty five hundred years ago. I saw it in myself, you know, we come upon many, many insights, many, many understandings, but you have to be willing to let go of grasping onto them about as fast as they come. Or the, the teachings are a facet of the, of the jewel, but to say, it's yeah. when you're saying they're not the truth, you're meaning they're not, they're, they can't be the whole jewel, they can just be... At best, they can represent a facet. Uh -huh. They still yeah. can't be the facet, uh -huh. right? Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like a teaching can say... If you look at life through through this window, it's going to look this way. Yeah. But the only truth is when you're looking through that window. Yeah. Right? So even the teaching that describes what it'll be like, that teaching isn't the ultimate truth. Yeah. It's your view. That's what's going to be the truth. Yeah. Right? That awakened consciousness, that's going to be the truth. The teaching may be significant. It helps you get there. Yeah. But once you get there then you don't need to hold on to the teaching. Yeah. And I think, especially in non-dual traditions, 
um, that you utilize very powerful, very potent, and actually very simple um, teachings to shift people's consciousness. They're very potent because they are so simple. Yeah. And because they are so different from the way that we're all taught to think and we're all taught to perceive. So, someone comes to a non-dual teacher that's spent many years struggling and striving in their spiritual practice, and the non-dual teacher says, well, there's nothing to do. All you're doing just deludes you more. There's nothing to do. Enlightenment isn't far away. It's here, so there's nowhere to go. And all of the thoughts you have, none of them are true, so stop trying to find the right yeah. thought. It can be a very, very powerful teaching. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's because it's so simple. It short-circuits the way someone view, yeah. checks. And maybe, maybe it shifts their perception. Yeah. Now, if it shifts their perception, wonderful, unless they hold on to the teaching. Yeah. Which can ha you can have your perception shift, but then you hold on to what helped get you there. Or worse than that, you don't have a shift of consciousness, and you just grab hold of the teaching. Then you just become another fundamentalist. Yeah. Right. There is as many non-dual fundamentalists as Christian fundamentalists and Hindu fundamentalists and yeah. everything else. Yeah. And I see, I think we've talked about, you see this phenomena in a lot of non-dual spirituality. Yeah. I see as a teacher that's associated with non-dual spirituality that the non-dual teachings among the, a lot of the adherents yeah. of non-dual, the, the, the people that are involved in it often become fundamentalists. And they don't know it, and they wouldn't even think, they would never believe it because they think, you know, it's an Eastern teaching sure. or it's, it's, more, it's more oriented in teachings of enlightenment or mysticism. But it's just, it's, if you grab hold of it, sure. it's just another form of fundamentalism that yeah. distorts perception. Yeah. So this is a, it's the gift of some teachings. They have this great gift to shift consciousness. But the more, this is something I found as a teacher, the more powerful a teaching was, the more true it was, the more powerful, the easier it was to be misused. Mm -hmm. The more power it had, the easier it could be misused. And that's the sort of the trick with very powerful teachings from any tradition. They're very powerful, but because they're powerful, they're very easy to be misunderstood and misused. And that's what happens in a lot of non-dual circles, as well as sure. any spiritual circles. Sure. You know, so I want to ask you one more question about thoughts mm -hmm. and not believing our thoughts, and yet also potentially the beneficial power of certain thoughts. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with ethics and kind of positionality, if you will. Yeah. And in my own exposure to all kinds of non-dual teachings, it's been very beneficial to reveal to me how judgmental I can be about all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I've been a very opinionated person about all kinds of things, from politics to environmental issues and blah, blah, blah. And it's been very helpful for me to question, maybe that's just a position mm -hmm. I have. Mm -hmm. And often when I do that, I think, you know, it is actually, you know, actually I could argue the other side. Wow, I could argue, wow, these are all just different perspectives. Yeah. I get that. And it's been very helpful. At the same time, I've felt a great uh, concern that therefore we're sort of throwing out all positions mm -hmm. as equally valid mm -hmm. and there's no reason to express a strong opinion 
about all kinds of human rights violations or other types yeah. of crimes against humanity. And I think so this is non-duality has brought me this gift, which is to question my positionality, yeah. but it's brought with it a poison to the people that I see as the non-dual fundamentalists, to mm-hmm. use your language, mm-hmm. which is now, I mean, should I bother to vote? Will I express my opinion in a debate that involves planetary destruction? Mm-hmm. So, so what do you have to say about that? <laughs> it's a great question. Well, it all comes back to me is when and if we can get to the view of truth. It's just seeing things the way they are. That's all enlightenment is, isn't it? Just seeing things the way they are. So seeing things from an undistorted perception. When we get to that place where we're actually seeing things from an undistorted perception, and then we're not, we're not piling on even the teachings that helped us get there, right? We're not superimposing the old teachings that helped us maybe get to that view, but we're actually viewing from what's real and true itself, Certainly what I have found is totally naturally, without any ideas about the way things should be or need to be, that the truth itself, seeing things from the level of our true nature, we could say, there is a natural sense of goodness that just arises in us. There's a natural state of goodness. We see the natural state of goodness. And the natural state of goodness is, in a certain sense, that we care. That we actually care about the world we're in. We care, but we don't care in the old way. In the Mm -hmm. conditioned way, our caring means that I am anxiety-ridden about what I care about. Mm -hmm. Or what I care about, let's say, if I care about the environment, then I am internally divided against the people that are polluting or destroying the environment. That's one kind of caring. That's a kind of caring that also breeds a certain division, has enemies. There's a different kind of caring, which I would suggest comes from truth itself, comes from our true nature, which is a caring without anxiety, which is very strange because it comes from that, that simultaneously place where we know, we feel, we experience it all as well. Everything is well, even though everything is not well. It doesn't, um, it doesn't diminish that everything is not well. Mm-hmm. Everything feels totally well and it's not well. Mm-hmm. And we can see it both simultaneously. And yet, at that point, there's, no, there's nothing in us that's divided. There's no resistance to what we see and to what we know. And so there's a natural expression of what the, to use old terminology, the spiritual virtues. Mm-hmm. You know, love, compassion, um, you know, sympathy, selflessness. All these, the old spiritual virtues are actually rooted within the views from reality. What, what we all, I think what a lot of us spiritual, you know, people that have been on the spiritual path, is we know that those kind of, those kind of virtues have been incorporated into a very relative and conditioned sort of sense of morality. Yeah. Which, you know, if I, if, like I always tell the people, if I'm going to be in, in ego land, I'd rather be in egos that have a healthy sense of morality than sure. egos that have no sense of morality. Sure. But when the teachings tell us the truth is beyond right and wrong, good and evil, that doesn't mean 
what convention what a conventional mind would think. The conventional mind would think, well then, there's just no right and wrong, right? Whoopee. Like a certain sort of anarchy. Yeah. Or or nothing really matters, right? Yeah. Whether I whether I hug you or shoot you, ultimately it doesn't matter. That's trying to understand a very high level of wisdom from a very low level perspective. Yeah. When you find yourself on the level of reality itself or find the perception coming from that place, you realize this is beyond right and wrong and good and evil, but it has its own... It, it, truth moves in particular ways. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't move in ways that divide because it's not divided. Yeah. Right? For instance, when you wake up and you have just one of those good days, don't know why. All right, you yeah. just woke up. Okay. You just feel good, right? It's just like, ah, it's a good day. And you feel good inside, right? Yeah. You notice you treat people different? Yeah. Not because you have a morality that says you should, but because you feel good. Yeah. Right? And so it changes the way you behave. And that's what's trying to be pointed at when, when the teachings say beyond right and wrong. It's like when you feel good, you act good. Yeah. Not because you should because you have right and wrong in your head, but because you're more in a tune with, with your true nature. Yeah. And when, you, when you're not divided, you don't act divided. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's, that's the ethic, really, or the morality of enlightenment. When you're not divided, you don't act divided. And when, you don't, when you're not divided, you have a whole lot of space in your consciousness to, to feel the world around you without going into division, to division about it. You can see the suffering. You can see the greed. You can see the hate. You can see the starving children. And you can see everything without going into division. And when there's not division inside, my experience is there's usually, there is a response. Something happens. Mm-hmm. Right? You, I can't, you can't know exactly what it will be, but there'll be some... There's, there's a relationship. Because right? yes, you know that it's, it's all one, it's all you, and simultaneously, the one is always in relationship with itself, so you're always in relationship with what you're being per- perceiving without division, though. So there is, in the way I've seen it, there is sort of an enlightened ethic, but it's not an ethic that's imposed by thought. It's an ethic that simply arises when you don't feel and experience inner division. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, had this phrase, basic goodness. That's it. This was his phrase, basic goodness, to describe the nature of reality. And and that it sort of informs every... and, And, you know, a lot of people have questions about that. Like, well, how do we know that that is actually the nature of reality? That it's basically good. Right. If you look around, it looks like it's equally screwed up as it is good mm-hmm. i mean so right is this is your inner this inner knowing this is my yeah this is what i found this is my experience this is what because i a big part of what helped it seems to be in retrospect to open this view up was I, at a certain point, I didn't care what I would find when I found what was really ultimately true and ultimately real. I literally said to myself, I don't care if it ends up being wonderful and goodness and heavenly or absolutely terrible and 
you know, dastardly in the world is actually, the ultimate reality is actually a very dark, sinister thing. But I didn't care. I just had to find out. And it just so happens that that, that reality itself is not divided. And that's where that sense of basic goodness comes from. When you don't feel divided, there's a goodness that comes out of you, isn't there? Whether one is enlightened or not, anytime someone doesn't feel, very, doesn't feel divided, there's a goodness that comes out. The more they feel divided, the more division is expressed. So ultimately, our ultimate nature is, does have a real sense of goodness to it. Yeah? But, and the, but the reasons that these teachings have come about is because our mind keeps wanting to impose or it's afraid to let go of its conditioned ideas of right morality and because yeah. that's very has been very confining to a lot of people yeah. and has put a lot of yeah. limit and they're so busy trying to be a the good right person yeah. that they feel very confined so certain teachings come along that blow all that out of the water maybe they get a different view but what's this is something i found really interesting as a, as a teacher that even when you come into the ultimate view it doesn't mean that your mind won't start making mistranslations to translate that view in distorted ways mm-hmm. your mind if if you're not very careful and very quiet your mind will start making assumptions um about the view because that's what our minds do don't yeah. they they box everything. They yeah. turn it into a story. They yeah. right, and so it's very easy when oh, everything is so open and right. Yep. There's nowhere to go. There's no doer. There's all those old teachings. It's very easy then for the mind to start making assumptions about that, a new story. And so. You know, and what's all the new stories are usually, you can always count that all the new stories are usually stories that are going to help the ego out. So the ego doesn't have to feel bad about anything, right? So it can do what it wants. Does that make sense? I've, I mean, this was really, really, really quite mm, surprising. When I started, the more I started to teach, and I saw people that came in these very real um, experience and radical shifts of consciousness. And even though that that would happen, it didn't mean their mind wouldn't almost immediately start creating new distortions. Yeah. Right? And new ways for maybe even the remnants of ego to sort of hide behind. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Instead of, oh, because that view is actually very, um, it's very, very um, threatening to the ego, ultimately. Because there's nothing in there for, for the ego. Well, and you can't take the position of your new discovery. No. Even can. the position that everything's positionless. There right. may be times when, for example, as we're talking about, right. taking an ethical stance is exactly what our basic goodness nature calls us to do in That's that moment, right. even though it may, someone else may say, wow, I thought you were some non-dual practitioner. That's you right. look like you're really taking a strong, hard line here. But, you know, it's, it, doesn't, it depends what's happening on the inside. That's right. That's it. And, you know, in, in the tradition I came from in Zen, that, you know, they have hundreds of koans, 
and there's all the different koans are 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 there's different classifications so there are different ones are trying to do different things and the interesting thing about the the, the koans that they use in zen is some of them are meant to get you that first opening to reality that first aha right yeah of the ultimate and then the the more as you as you go on other koans are actually then trying to get you to be able to operate within that view yeah and then other koans are trying to get you to see that you can't you can't always wise, wisely operate and hold on to the very thing you realized so some koans you have to change your perception very to to respond adequately to it yeah. and then then you get you, you when you develop the capacity to respond from one position you get a question that requires you to, to respond to it t- from a totally different position and if it all goes right you have the 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 whole idea isn't that you simply realize the ultimate reality the idea is that your consciousness becomes so flexible mm-hmm. and so lacking of self or ego mm-hmm. that consciousness can move anywhere is necessary the situation dictates where consciousness moves and where action comes from where your where the response to any moment comes from and in order to have that happen every view has to be the grasping at it has to be let go of the view doesn't have to be let go of but the grasping does like the buddha said what what did you attain through supreme enlightenment right and he said i attained absolutely nothing through unexcelled enlightenment which meant there was nothing there for me to hold on to even the absolute view even enlightenment I could not hold on to as a new rarefied position. There was nothing that was attained when everything was let go of the the ego that which would hold on to anything, even the absolute was let go of. Then there's something in us that just sort of moves very quickly to the appropriate response. And it may be there's no right and wrong it may be a quick position that seems like very much like right or wrong mm-hmm. and everything in between so everything becomes open to us mm-hmm. everything and i think that's that's the thing that's often missing in 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 the um, some of some of the non-dual experiences that people have from many many tr- different traditions is what's often not spoken of, of is as it says in one of the zen um sutras to to realize the absolute is not yet enlightenment you know so when people realize the absolute just that last little bit of ego that says that's it now i've got it this is what's true and that sutra reminds you no that's not that's significant but don't hold on to it otherwise your enlight your realization of the absolute just becomes another another distortion mm-hmm. you know and then you're kind of left very empty-handed but not empty-handed in the sense that you become incapable of response or impotent to to maneuver in life or even to take certain positions but you become empty-handed in the sense that there's no resistance in you to the reality moving the way it 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 wants it naturally will move Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a conversation with Adya Shanti. Adya, as he is known by friends and students, is one of my favorite spiritual teachers. He works with an organization called the Open Gate Sangha, and he's the author of a book called The End of Your World, Uncensored Straight Talk on the Nature of Enlightenment. And this book is also an audio learning series available through SoundsTrue.com. We also published a book CD with Adya on true meditation and an audio learning series on spontaneous awakening, all available at SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey, SoundsTrue.com.